Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a new episode of Open Your Hymnal. My name is Matt Reichert. And I am Zach Stahowski. And we are really pleased that you've joined us today. Yeah, we're going to be discussing uh, the song My Soul is Thirsting by Steve Angrisano. A little bit later in the episode, in the in the playlist feature, you're going to get to hear about my first encounter with uh, Steve Angrisano. But I think Matt even has a more amusing anecdote about the first time he ever met Steve Angrisano. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, this is my, my second favorite How I Met the Composer story. Because, of course, as our longtime listeners will know, um, Zach, you and I both met Bob Hurd when he took us out bowling when we were in high school. So that... Yeah, that has to hard be hard to top that. Yeah, that has to be number one. But for Steve Angrisano, actually, I met him. I didn't realize I was meeting him um, at a table prayer event at Music Ministry Alive when we did a foot washing at the table, and Steve Angrisano washed my feet. And I I remember this because how how often does Steve Angrisano wash your feet? But also, <laughs> I I distinctly remember realizing you know, halfway through the second foot, who Steve was at the time <laughs> that he was washing my feet. And I thought, I thought that was, that was just an incredible experience. So, so what were you thinking about during the first foot? <laughs> I was thinking, here's this nice guy and he's doing a good job. I wonder what his story is. And then I realized, oh, it's Steve Angrisano. So I know that's an odd story and a unique story or experience, you know, for me. But but I think what you'll hear, if, if you've never seen Steve before, you know, in person as a speaker or as a musician, um, I, I hope what you hear coming through the episode today just is really what a what a gentle spirit and what a kind hearted man he is and a real a real servant that he is um, it was just a real joy to speak with steve to hear about his vocation as a composer so please open your hymnal to my soul is thirsting my soul is thirsting for you oh lord thirsting for you my god my soul is thirsting for you Hi, I'm Steve Angrisano, a music missionary, speaker, and composer. Thirsting for you, my God. My soul is thirsting for you. So, uh, My Soul is Thirsting is a psalm. It's Psalm 63, and I wrote it. Um, it's it's a it's an interesting question for you to ask, because it's, a, it's one of my songs with the most interesting stories, I think, at least as a songwriter. I wrote the music at least... I don't know, six or seven years before I wrote the the words. And, and it, it was in a slightly different form. And I, I originally wrote it possibly to be a song at my wedding. I ended up writing a completely different song for my own wedding. Uh, and I sang that song at one point in the wedding. And then this just kind of sat there. And then I revised it to the tune that you, that you would recognize as My Soul is Thirsting. But I didn't have any words for it for a long time. I played it over and over. And uh, one day my wife just looked at me and she said, Hey, honey. And I was like, yes. She's like, just stop playing. Will you stop playing that? You've been playing that for years. Like either finish that song or release it back to the universe. <laughs> I don't know, but like, you're driving me crazy, you know? And so I tried to explain to her, you know, like writer's block sort of thing. I just couldn't figure out what to go with it. And she said, you know, why don't you just take a Bible, open it up and sing something? And I'm like, honey, if you could do that, everybody would write songs for a living, you know? And she said, well, you know, 
a bad song would be better than no song at all. So just give it a try. So I, I, oh, I literally took her Bible, which she conveniently flung in my general direction. <laughs> and I opened it up and I just, I put my finger down on the line. My soul is thirsting for you. And it just sang, my soul is thirsting for you, oh Lord. And I thought, wow, that line actually does fit. And I went downstairs. It was middle of the night, more or less. I went downstairs and I wrote the whole song in about seven minutes. And uh, the only thing I was thinking as I wrote the song, the thing I was thinking was, we will, most of us listening to this, not know what it's like to be truly dying of thirst, thirsting in that way. But the way the psalmist says, my soul is thirsting for you, Lord, um, you know, the way our body desires water, so our soul desires God, thirsts for God, requires God to survive. And uh, that's really was my prayer as I wrote it. And it's been still to this day one of my uh, favorite songs to sing and one that I get the most feedback on. A lot of times we sing that at my dad's funeral or something like that. And so um, you picked a, you picked one that's close to my heart. You know, I've always liked this song. I've always thought it was a very singable melody uh, and, uh, like, for lack of a better word, a catchy tune. But um, for a long time, I was actually resistant to using it uh, when Psalm 63 uh, would come up. I would. I was always in favor of the more, um, I don't know, uh, somber-sounding settings. Uh, the Michael Jonkis setting comes to mind. Uh, but as I've listened to it more and have heard Steve's recording of it, I start to hear that there's there actually is a lot of pleading and a sense of longing in the melody, I think, especially in the verses. And so now I now I do use it. I've really come a, come around to 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 hearing how um, the melody uh, really, I think, does bring uh, this text to life. You know, as we've discussed with other composers in previous episodes, you know, your your comment about, you know, wanting that pleading sound is important because, of course, the psalms are so emotive and so emotional. And, and you know, it's interesting thinking about the, the need for this to be pleading because— when you look at the text, I mean, my soul is thirsting. What a what a powerful and provocative image that is. Um, I think you're right, Zach. If when you when you look at it musically, you do get that that sense of of longing, that sense of desire that that comes through with the text. Yeah, and I think it it requires us as music directors, music ministers, to look deeper beyond our initial hearings of something. I think so often at a very surface level, sometimes we tend to say, oh, major key and syncopated happy, you know, and that's not necessarily always true. There's, you know, some of the saddest, um, you know, most mournful music uh, that we know has been written in major keys. And so it's just, it's a matter of, you know, how we, how we execute a song, um, how we study it, and how we reflect on it. There are basically two ways that I write songs today, and it's going to sound funny if you're not a songwriter. One is like homework. One is 
I have a publisher that calls and says, we need a setting of Psalm 63, will you take a look? So that in some ways is good, in some ways is bad. You know, I mean, it's not, maybe at the outset, it doesn't sound as creative, but the reality is I kind of like when they say, hey, look at this packet passage or take a look at this. We need a good uh, closing song. And, and it gives me a little bit of an assignment and I tend to write well like that. But when I'm writing generally from just scratch, I tend to write music first and find a little hook in the tune that I like and and then start to think, what does that sound like? You know, is it happy? Is it sad? Is it a contempl- contempl- contemplative? Would it be a communion song? Would it be an opening song? I write mostly for liturgy and for worship today. Not completely, but occasionally children's birthdays and other things, <laughs> but but mostly for, for prayer and liturgy. And so uh, that's the way I start. The thing that I think is interesting about that song is uh, it's a good song to talk about. People sometimes talk about contemporary music and syncopation and they find it difficult and I find it not difficult, you know, and, and one of the things I think that song is a good example of is uh, um, I'm, I've, I was studying chant actually with Father Columba Kelly who just passed away. So I'm going to take a class from him in a week, but he's, he won't be there to teach the class, but uh, one of the other monks will be there. And I know, I know several of them, but he talks about the rhythm of language and the importance of that. And I always think contemporary music often is really uh, akin to chant in that way where, where the song may go, my soul is thirsting for you, O Lord, thirsting for you, my God. But that, that's the emphasis you would sing. My soul is thirsting for you, O Lord. Or rather, that's the emphasis you would say. My soul is the, and so you don't say, my soul is thirsting for you, oh, you don't talk that way, right? And so I think good contemporary music, and hopefully that, that song would squeak into that category, is going to, um, it's going to mimic the rhythm of your speech. So while it may be syncopated, it's not randomly so, you know. And, and I'm glad that you've introduced the concept of syncopation here, too, because I mean, this is a, as you mentioned before, you know, you often use the Jonka setting or the Bernadette Farrell setting or, or any of the other, other lovely, more somber or more traditional settings, I guess, if we want to use that word. This is certainly a contemporary setting. And I think sometimes, and, and we'll hear Steve talk about this in just a second, sometimes people have a difficulty with or resistance to more contemporary settings because of their syncopation or their rhythm. They find it challenging when they look at it instead of, of you know, experiencing it or hearing it. Um, and so certainly that's a consideration here, and it's something that Steve mentioned when he spoke with us. Well, and that's exactly the, the, the key there, Matt, is when people look at it is when it looks confusing, right? So we as musicians, all of a sudden, we see notes and rhythms getting tied across the bar or, you know, eighth rests and dots and all of these things. But um, yeah, of course, as as you listen to it, there's really nothing complicated about it. We make it so, and then we, we kind of project that confusion upon others. You know, when I wrote that, so to be honest, when I wrote that song, I was coming very much from being a full-time speaker, musician. I left my job at the parish where I did youth ministry and and confirmation and music ministry. I wasn't the music director at my parish, but I was leading two contemporary ensembles. And 
So here I am working at the parish, and here I'm going off. And I was more or less, when it came to writing, used to writing for myself. So when you write just for yourself, you really don't think too much about those things. Then when you start to write for people, other people to sing, when you're not there, you know, and you think, well, this has to be a little more self-evident. And uh, that was one of the first ones, I think, that that really took me from being, uh, that's one of the first pieces from that took me from writing purely as a performance artist to being a composer of music that other people would sing. And it happened a lot instinctively, I think. I noticed that I repeat that pattern a lot in my music, which which I call, when I'm directing a choir, I always call it, I'm really just singing quarter notes on the offbeat, right? You know, and that's that's what I think is funny. Sometimes that when you look at it, it's far more complicated. Christopher Walker, great composer, and, and uh, we did a, a song in the showcase, and, and he said to me after we were finished, he said, when you teach your music to other composers, tell them to put the music down, sing it for them once, have them sing it back, because it's quite easy if you just listen to it. And I thought that was very interesting. And so now over the years, I've worked with so many more ensembles and music groups that I think my writing has intuitively split the difference a little more between when I wrote that and today. But but uh, I still like... I still like that rhythm to the music. It's it's always the hardest thing today in writing the rhythm to the music is that for publishing sake, this is maybe a little inside story, but you know, they really don't want a song to be longer than one or two pages. So if I wrote a song 10 years ago and it had a little syncopation, no big deal. Today, it's no big deal as long as the verses stack, you know, but if this one's syncopated here and that one's syncopated there, and next thing you know, we need four pages to make the song a part of a book, then it's not going to happen. So it makes you really, I've become a better lyricist because I've had to find ways to say things that if I'm going to use two eighth notes, I got to use it in the same place every verse, you know. it was a couple of years before I realized people were singing the song and uh, that was my first recording on honestly you look back at your first recording with a publisher and there's a lot of things you would do different but uh, go make a difference and my soul is thirsting were both on there and they were both songs I wrote when I think I I knew a lot less about what I was doing than I do today and at the same time, they're two uh, very often sung songs and even Go Make a Difference, which I, I am kidded about a little bit here and there. But I say, hey, it's not my fault it became the national anthem of Catholic grade school. <laughs> but it is often sung in schools and kids like the song. And, and uh, I had no idea when I was pouring my heart out to, to talk about how our soul thirsts for God that, that, that uh, Make a Difference would do better. <laughs> We can make a difference Go make a difference in the world Go make a difference But in all honesty, I think My Soul is Thirsting has the most legs It's published by all the publishers today And I think uh, I was vaguely aware Vaguely aware that that was happening I didn't really know how to know that, to be honest uh, the, the first time I saw it in print with publishers other than my own I did cry. I'll be very honest. I did cry because uh, I never, I didn't really see it coming. They didn't ask. And that's when you start to think, wow, uh, I would have, you know, now you're hanging at NPM with all these composers and publishers that work on books of hundreds of songs and all this. And 
I think, boy, first conference like this I ever saw, I was a teenager at LA Congress, and uh, I'm not trying to be sappy, but truly, if you'd have told me as a teenager that I've even have one song in one book <laughs> that someone might sing in their church, I think I would have not known what to do with myself. I would have been so excited. And uh, and so to have seen that song, the first one I saw uh, move like that was very um, uh, humbling, I guess, you know. One of the really fun things about doing this podcast for me is hearing about what these composers were like uh, when they were young, when they were kids, uh, because it reminds me so much of myself, and it helps me to realize that maybe I was not as big of a nerd as I thought that I was. Um, well, no, that's that's not true. I totally was. <laughs> but um, like hearing Steve talk about listening to that music, because I remember, you know, when I first started learning how to play the guitar, the way that I learned how to play electric guitar was that I would listen to David Haas's recordings and learn all of Bobby Fischer's electric guitar solos, you know, while most kids were learning guitar by playing Metallica and Van Halen and things like that. I was I was learning the solo to "You Are the Presence." No, I think I think most people were going to like football games and on dates and things. <laughs> so that, that's where everyone was. Yeah. <laughs> I was a teenager at Congress watching the Damians on the stage and going, "Oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing ever! I can't believe!" And that makes me as as much of a nerd as any kid. That 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 was my high school. You know, when people say, oh, who was your inspiration? You know, I'm like, oh, you know, uh, St. Louis Jesuits, Damien's. You know. So uh, I, I started playing guitar at Mass, and it was because of a man named Les. And that's what, that is how I really answered that question. Who was your inspiration? Les. Les Paul? No. Les, I don't remember his last name. But he played guitar at 6 p.m. on Sunday nights at Mass. And he invited me, and because I work with a lot of young people, I do always mention this when I have a chance with uh, liturgy and music people. I mean, I do this for a living today, but but I began because someone invited me, you know, and I think we sometimes forget to walk up to those kids who are gifted and who are musicians and passionate and invite them to, to play, come play with us. And he was very patient with me. I'm sure I must have showed some promise to him, but I didn't. I don't know why I, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I sat next to him and he gave us a book of music every week and he would all the tricky chords F sharp minor, he would have already written the fingerings in. So I would not be embarrassed and have to ask. So I was grateful for that. And then one day, uncharacteristically, he gave me my music for next week in advance. He gave it to me on Sunday uh, as we were wrapping up and he usually gave it to us on Wednesday when we had rehearsal and he said, here, take this now. I was like, okay, great. And then uh, I'm packing up. And then he, right when he gets to the door, he says, I'm leaving out of town this week, but you can run the rehearsal and play for Mass. You'll be fine. And then he was out the door before I had a chance. So he literally kicked me out of the nest. So that was a real beginning. And I played music at col in college. I led a music group at my university on Sundays. And uh, I graduated, got a job as a youth minister. That was my actual job. I was a youth minister. They quickly figured out I was also a musician. So they, you know how parishes are. The, the more you will do, the more they'll have you do. So next thing you know, I'm an assistant music director and a youth minister. And there was just a real fateful year where um, I was asked to write a song for the National Catholic Youth Conference. And I wrote Go Make a Difference with Tom Tomasek. And I was... Um, invited to sing at in Mile High Stadium when the Pope came for World Youth Day in Denver, Colorado. And uh, I did my first ever presentation at a 
as part of a long story, but part of a youth choir at an NPM thing. And, and all of a sudden, in a year, here I am, at, knowing that there's a national gathering of youth of a music minister singing in front of a stadium full of people, writing a theme song that OCP agreed to publish, and uh, and bam, bam, bam. It was it was a little bit of a big leap. I mean, here I am being a youth minister once a month, going to play a concert or lead music for a retreat, and then six months after all that happened, I was getting two or three invitations a month to come do things. And when you're only making $18,000 to work at a church, it doesn't take many gigs to equal that, you know? So I'm like, hey, I could do just as good out there as I could do here. And that was sort of the beginnings. Many of our listeners probably know that in addition to this podcast, uh, one of the projects that uh, Matt and I are really passionate about is our work with the One Call Institute, where we are uh, seeking to empower uh, young liturgical musicians and their advocates. And so, of course, we were really interested to talk to Steve about his involvement with young people. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, this is, this is of course, a topic that, that you and I are really, really passionate about. And I would encourage anyone listening who wants to find out more to go to onecallinstitute.org. Um, but, but beyond that, I mean, this is a this is a topic or a subject of conversation that is happening at all levels of the church. I mean, I don't know of a single parish in the United States who says, we have too many young people who are too involved. You know, I mean, everyone is is trying to figure out this whole question of, of engagement and outreach. I mean, even at the time of our conversation, at the time of this recording right now, there is the, you know, synod on young people going on right now in Rome. And this is a vital and important topic for or the future of the church and the the future of, of all of us. And so I think having somebody like Steve, who has been out on the front lines or in the trenches, whichever image you prefer, um, reaching out to young people was really a good insight into and masterclass in lessons of someone who does this day in and day out. And I was really grateful for, for his wisdom. That's, that is that is a million-dollar question, and I've done a lot of research on this, really, and uh, I don't know. It's going to sound funny coming from me, but as a person who's made uh, probably 50% of my living today is parish missions, and I think ministering to families has really taught me uh, the importance of not simply ministering to youth, you know, and, and so I say this partly tongue-in-cheek, you know, but... But I, th- I think I, I could really make waves in the youth ministry community as a longtime member of it by writing a book that says youth group doesn't matter. But youth group doesn't matter. <laughs> the only thing is it really does matter a lot, you know, to the people it matters to. And, and our seminaries are filled with people who came to youth conferences and who are part of ministry at their parish. So I'm saying it, like I said, a little bit tongue in cheek. But as the larger numbers go, it, it doesn't draw the majority of kids from our parish and it doesn't... Um, you know, and those the majority of the ones that do come don't stay faithful. And so what do we do to stay faithful? I think one is, and I'm not saying this just because I'm a liturgy person as well, but one is we do mass well. And and I'm less concerned about style. You know, a lot of people want to debate style with me because they're real traditional or they think I'm real contemporary and I would defend that to the end. And I really don't. You know, you know what I'll defend to the end is quality. 
Like when you go to something inspiring, you like it and it moves you and you open your heart to it. And I think what people young and old don't have a lot of times this is is quality in the, in their experience of prayer. And that's something I think we could do differently. Um, when it comes to youth in particular, there was a great study done. I think it's Kara research, but I'm not, not I'm 99% sure. But the, the most common denominator, the greatest indicator of a faithful young person becoming a faithful adult is daily prayer. Simple as that, daily prayer. That their relationship with God goes beyond that they went to church on Sunday or that they go to youth group or that they went on the big mission trip. So all those things I think are hooks. They're connecting points. But are we teaching people to pray every day? And I think that comes down to families, you know. And if I could change one thing about the way we minister to youth and quite honestly the way we minister to families and adults is um, we've become, you know, if, if you show up at a new church, the first thing you get asked is, hey, what do you want to do? Do you want to volunteer? We don't, we don't really need them to volunteer at the church as much as we need them to be faithful at home. And I think we forget that. And I would create more of a sense of, Hey, here you go. If you belong to our church, you take this home and you pray these prayers. You pray this little night prayer tonight with your family in a circle, and and uh, it's three minutes long, and it, it won't hurt your day, and and uh, you'll find your your family coming together around your faith. That that's my answer. Let us live our lives so that all might see that our hearts are restless till they rest in Thee. Let us build your kingdom in truth and grace So that all might know they have a rightful place Beauty ever ancient and new Breaking through our deafness so we hear you Shattering the darkness of night Dawn is rising to bring your light to all the world. Let us live our lives so that all might see. If there was a silver bullet, someone would have found it. So <laughs> it's not a silver bullet, or someone would have found it. Um, I think it's a complicated. I think music. When you get right down to it, music and preaching are the two elements of prayer and liturgy that we control the most. You know, uh, mass, when you say liturgy, if you mean mass, the rest of the words are pretty much what they're going to be. And the rest of the experience is laid out as it's intended to lay out. So um, I do think young people want to pray genuinely. And I think they are connected a little bit to, you know, they're, they're, they're just like adults. Some of, them, some of them find themselves really drawn to traditional music and they play in orchestra and they sing in choir and they love musicals and, and they're those kind of kids that are drawn to that. Others, uh, you know, more of a sense of praise and worship music the way you might hear in a Protestant church. I don't think we should do praise and worship music masses 100%. I don't, you know, I, I don't do it 100%. But yeah, if I look at the text and I look at the song and it draws people in and it's and it's it's not, you know, I always tell people songs don't have denominations, you know, people do. So, uh, but songs do have theology. And so you want to make sure that I'm comfortable with the theology. But I do think young people are very attached to music. They're very drawn to music. And so I think somewhere between Silver Bullet and and Not Important, you know, we can't change very many things about mass. But quality music that they can sing with and feel passion for I think is important so here I am to worship 
what's I think a key change in society in, the, in what you just said is even faithful parents and as a person who works in ministry I encounter a lot of faithful children whose parents don't come to church anymore and faithful and that's that you wouldn't even think you'd ever heard to hear that a few years ago but I encounter that a lot and and faithful parents whose children don't come to mass or don't you know wouldn't wouldn't consider themselves Catholic or Christian anymore and uh, one of the interesting things is the culture is the culture is working against us in a way that I think isn't true of the past. You know, I used to say, you know, the culture was a little bit ambivalent, but I, I don't think that's true. I think the culture has animosity towards faith. And I even say to kids, you know, one thing that I hate about watching YouTube, even before I talk about religion, I said, you know, I can show you a video of a person mocking religion, but I can show you a hundred videos of sarcastic clever people just mocking everything good in the world like and i i really believe that's evil you know i don't know what else to call it but but that's almost part of our culture now we just mock anything that's good and and so here they are growing up in this and i i see so often even if it's a teacher of religious education or a parent you know a kid asks a genuine question and you see the kind of the fear that a parent has or that even a teacher has if if a if a kid asks a complex question about a complex issue, you know, and and the thing is that fear is an answer unto itself. That fear is we don't really have an answer for that. Well, what about this issue that's in the news? Well, we don't really have an answer for that, you know, and 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 that's why it's it is complicated. And ultimately it's not about music, as you said, you know, ultimately we have to be able to simply formulate what we believe in ways that parents can talk to kids and kids can talk to their parents. And uh, I don't think we've done that as well as we, we could have. We have nuggets of it, but I think the average parent doesn't have those answers at their disposal. I try to be that. And, and I use a lot of story. If you've never seen me before in person, I use a lot of story. And I think I've learned in that why Jesus spoke in parables, you know, because uh, it leaves a person to really find the message wherever they're at. And, and, and uh, I may be doing a youth event, but it's the adults and the parents who are drawing the most out of it because they have the most experience to bring to the story. And a great pastor, a mentor of mine back when I lived in Colorado used to say, uh, you know, today in the church, we, we teach the children and we bless the adults, but Jesus didn't do that. Jesus blessed the children and taught the adults. And it goes right to what you were saying about how we're, our faith is not well formed, you know, and, and I really think that is changeable. I mean, that, that we have it. And that's one of the, but we talked about the bad news, but the good news to me is I see a lot of renewal in the hearts and minds of those who are in power in the church where 
15 years ago, I'd sit around with a musician friend or a youth ministry friend, and we'd talk about, well, Father doesn't get this, and the church doesn't do that, and they don't have money for this. But something's changed. If you work in the church, I think you see it, you know, where, yeah, in the seminary, they're reading these books about renewal of the church in the in, in music programs and ministry programs. I mean, we're looking at issues a little more evangelization-oriented, and I think we're going to have to— uh, when people tell me they don't enjoy going to Mass, you know, one of the things I always say is, here's the trick about Mass, to, to use a play on words, but Mass truly is the prayer of the faithful. It's the prayer of the faithful. And so the question is, are you coming faithful, you know? And that might be the work you need to do on Monday through Saturday, you know? Are you praying with your family? Are you reading that ahead of time? Are you thinking? Are you, even if you say, hey, I don't know if I believe that, that's great. Come with that question about faith, but but come, come to the prayer of the faithful with some uh, questions, love, anger, feelings about actual faith, you know? And you'll find Mass has a lot more to say to you. And I don't know that we do that as much as we could. I think my favorite thing about My Soul is Thirsting as a piece of music is that, for me anyway, it's a song that allows me to pray. And that's my hope when people sing it, is that it becomes not simply singing, but praying. And for me, it is the reason it's it's always important when I lead this as a responsorial psalm, not to be in this mode of, my soul is thirsting for you, but simply to pray it the way I would pray. My soul is thirsting for you, oh Lord, to feel the, the longing in it. And, uh, you know, that's a lot of times I think you learn the heart of a composer when you really think about what's the heart of the song. And now, here is a recording of My Soul is Thirsting in its entirety. My soul is thirsting for you, O Lord, thirsting for you, my God. My soul is thirsting for you, O Lord, thirsting for you, my God, thirsting for you. My soul is thirsting for you, Lord, thirsting for you, my God. My soul is thirsting for you, Lord, thirsting for you, my God. Thirsting for you, my God. Oh God, you are my God. My soul is thirsting for 
Now we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. It had been four years since veteran composer Steve Angrizano released his last full collection. A quick listen to High Above Our Way, released last November, confirms that the wait had been worth it. Once again, Steve provides us with beautiful melodies, challenging lyrics, and a taste of his deep commitment to a life of faith and love. Recorded in Nashville with notable producer Steve Hindelong, High Above Our Way includes all the music from Leading Us Home, along with six new songs that bring us closer to Christ. Particularly approachable and prayerful, these accessible songs feature a contemporary sound and are as suitable for liturgy as they are inspiring for personal listening. Over the years, it has become more and more evident that Steve has been blessed with the gifts of storytelling and music. High Above Our Way gives us another opportunity to appreciate his God-given talents. May we all draw closer to God and to one another as we listen to and sing each of these stunning songs. For more information and to purchase your own copy, visit ocp.org. Welcome back, everyone. It is now time for the Open Your Hymnal playlist. This is the part of our show where Zach and I get to play additional songs drawn from some theme or topic we've heard throughout today's episode and conversation. Uh, today, Zach, for my first pick, I am choosing a, a pretty new piece uh, written by Steve Angrizano, our guest today, um, because I wanted to highlight another one of Steve's pieces. But this also features, um, this is a collaboration with fellow composer Tom Booth. And I think what people will hear in this piece is um, one song that really has two distinct melodies that I think is interesting, but also another good example of the accessible, singable melodies that Steve writes. So this is called I Am the Bread of Life. shepherd's might I am the truth and light I am the way and life I am who am and I am for you come 
and follow me. I am bread for the world, hope for the hopeless. Come to me and know that I'll always be there with my arms open wide. I am who I am and I am for you. Come and follow me. I am the bread. Of I life. am bread for the world. I am the hope in life. That's a really good pick, Matt. I think, you know, I bumped a little bit when you said that this was a pretty new song. I mean, if you think about it, it's actually about three years old now. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, new in terms of, of a song that maybe our listeners don't necessarily know. And and that's that's one of the interesting things, of course, about liturgical music is that there are some songs that are only a few years old that people know well and some songs that have been around for a while that are still new to a different audience. I, I, yeah, exactly. Uh, so what else do you have for us? Well, you know, as is our custom, oftentimes when we have a song that we feature in our episode that's based on scripture or a, a certain standing text, um, we usually feature a different setting of that same text. So my second pick is another setting of Psalm 63. This one is also called My Soul is Thirsting, and this is from composer Donna Pena.
saciaré como en fiesta y satisfecho y mis labios te alabarán jubilosos. Mi alma. So those are my two playlist picks for today. Zach, what do you have for us? Well, one of the threads that Steve mentioned was how he was inspired uh, by going to uh, L.A. Congress. And so I wanted to choose uh, one of the theme songs from L.A. Congress. Um, Additionally, one of the other threads he talked about was just uh, the role of mentoring youth, of being mentored as a young person himself and how, you know, that played out in his life. And so to kind of kill two birds with one stone here, we have a recording of an L.A. Congress theme song. Uh, Voices That Challenge by David Haas, and it's sung by uh, some of the young people that David has mentored uh, through the years through his Music Ministry Alive program. And if you listen carefully, you'll be able to hear a young Matt Reichert on one of the verses. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Should we give give our listeners a prize for who, who spots the verse? I think if you spot the verse and you go ahead and send us an email, we can work out some sort of some sort of uh, some sort of appropriate recognition. Yes. Yeah, so uh, yeah, be sure like post it on our Instagram or our Facebook. If you if you think you know the verse that it's Matt Reichert singing, you let us know. But in the meantime, here is "Voices That Challenge" by David Haas. Is that- 
Well, thanks a lot, Zach, for that trip down memory lane. Um, and to all of our viewers, I can assure you that for our next playlist, Zach will go back to picking songs that he sings on. <laughs> it's it's only appropriate. Maybe I'll start picking songs that I wrote, too, and yeah. just really do the whole thing here. What else do you have, Zach? So I remember the first time that I encountered the music of Steve Angrizano. I was uh, at my first... NCYC. It was actually a really kind of special moment for me, much like what Steve talks about uh, in the episode, because uh, I was I was able to attend uh, NCYC as a member of the house band. I was, I think, like 15 or 16 years old. And uh, I remember Gary Daigle was running the band and just watching him work. I know I've mentioned before in other episodes was a very inspiring thing for me. But the theme song for NCYC that year was a song by Steve Angrisano, and it is called You Are The Way.
Thank you for listening to Open Your Hymnal, and special thanks to Steve Angrizano for speaking with us. My Soul is Thirsting is published by OCP. The recording you heard was released by OCP on the album Make a Difference. Links to this song, the other songs you heard, and additional resources can be found at our website, openyourhymnal.com. Production assistance and support for this episode was provided by OCP and by the National Association of Pastoral Musicians. Be sure to follow Open Your Hymnal on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you haven't yet, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes and Google Play. For Open Your Hymnal, I'm Zach Stahowski. And I'm Matt Reichert. Thanks for listening.